Hello, and welcome to AgTech So What, brought to you by Tenacious Ventures. I'm Sarah Nolette. This week is the final episode in our series, Collaborating with Trimble Agriculture, who's building technology to make farming better through precision. A huge thanks to Trimble for partnering with us to bring you today's show. Also a quick note, we have a ton of great insight to bring you this week on why autonomous equipment is so hard in agriculture. So to keep things snappy, we'll skip our Raising Out Loud segment. However, you can always check in on the latest from our Fun 2 journey on social media and visit the website in the show notes for more info. Now, on to the show. Autonomy is a favorite topic in the ag tech world, despite the fact that it has proven incredibly hard to figure out. From the technology to the use case, from the regulations to the data, there are barriers and problems to solve in every direction. One of the key challenges we've been reckoning with lately is where are the most promising opportunities in autonomy and which opportunities might be overstated. I can't build enough robots to surface an 80,000 acre field, especially when the dollar value for the big five crops, you know, like corn, wheat, soybeans, sorghum, you just can't make that cost benefit work yet because the autonomy for those sort of large tractors, it's just so expensive. And all you're replacing is one guy driving this monster machine. So all you're really saving is like $15 an hour. That's Ray Russell, principal hardware engineer at Locomation Incorporated, a company re-engineering the world's supply chain for autonomy. Ray is just one of the experts we tracked down today to help us get a better understanding of the limits of autonomous equipment in agriculture and how those limits will shape the equipment market going forward. We wanted to start with someone who could give us the kind of 3,000 foot view of why autonomy appeals, despite the limitation that Ray just pointed out. So we sat down with friend of the show, Connie Bowen, founder at Farmhand Ventures, an investment studio that's focused on autonomy as a way to augment human labor in agriculture. So labor is definitely a known issue in specialty crops, so fruit and veg stuff we eat. It's known that it is like the largest line item on crop budgets. It ranges from 40 up to 80% in certain crops of costs. And so like the obvious tech solution to that is autonomy, hooray, well, just robots will do it, which cool, that kind of makes sense. And we're seeing more dollars flow towards autonomy solutions, I think, for especially crop ag. So when I say like future of work in ag, I think people think, oh, autonomy. And absolutely autonomy is part of it, but my bet is that full autonomy is quite a bit further out for almost every outdoor specialty crop context than maybe some pitch decks would indicate. So what is your vision? And I want to talk about why autonomy is hard, but I guess what is your vision for a future of autonomy and for labor on farms? How do you see that working? So I think there will be people on farms 40, 50 years from now. I think people's jobs on farms can become much more appealing and less backbreaking, frankly. And I think that autonomy can enable that. I generally think that collaborative robotics, which is like a term that I find myself using all the time now, is a much more interesting bet, particularly if you take a second to, okay, here are the things that the world of sustainable or regenerative or whatever climate smart, whatever word we want to use for like better agri-food systems, right? Better agri-food systems, it seems relatively agreed upon, are more diverse and less monoculture based. And if that's true, then those environments are extremely difficult to fully automate. So autonomy plays a role in collaborative robotics, of course. Our classic example is future acres, right? So crop transportation, there's autonomy there a cart moves stuff from A to B by itself. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's displacing people 
though it might be enabling you to do more with fewer people, which is effectively displacing people, but in the context of macroeconomic trends around labor, actually it's just enabling you to continue as is. And maybe you eventually get to the place where you can start to do more interesting things with the limited people power you've got. You were talking a little bit about specialty crops, which one of the things we talk about in autonomy is like we've seen in automotive manufacturing, the factory will start to change around the use of autonomy. So we don't have lines that are set up for humans to install screws, right? We now have factories that are set up so robots can build cars. What do you imagine the analog is for farming? Are we going to have different types of specialty crop varieties, more diversity in the system? And like, what does that mean for humans and robots in, in the field? If we're going to have diff- more different varieties, that makes autonomy even harder. But I'm thinking actually, like I live in the Midwest. And so I'm thinking about what does it take to enable a conventional row crop farmer to change his or her land use? And the answer is complex, actually. Markets are a huge part of it. So you have to be looking all the way. Because like when you actually have to, you have to stretch out the economic incentives and very little of that is actually on the farm gate. So you actually have to look at, okay, what's happening in the packing? Who's getting paid what to do that? What's happening? How much is getting taken by retail? Blah, 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 blah. So that that marketing side of things is critical. But another really key element is labor. If you, in California, and I'm also going to be pretty US-centric when I talk about things. In California, like we have a labor force for specialty crop agriculture because there's a huge existing constituent of stakeholders who are going to lobby for and ensure that stays in place, right? But in Tennessee, we don't have that at all. And yet there is land that when you look at a business model, it makes sense to produce fruits or vegetables on some portion of your acreage. And in fact, you actually can start to think about how to create market access to that. But you can't do it right now because you don't have people to do it. And so I think that there's an interesting opportunity to enable that. And then looking more down the supply chain, you can start to think about Okay, if I'm the farmer, the more that I do on my farm, the more money I'm going to make, essentially, right? The less that I outsource, the more margin I get. And right now, there's no way that you have the capacity, for the most part, to clamshell in fields or bag or whatever it is, right? But if it starts to be true that you need half as many people to harvest or to weed, then you start to have extra capacity. And I think there's really interesting kind of reconfigurations of what harvest day can look like and that can start to incorporate packing. And I, I think that's very interesting. So one thing that I'm very interested in, like when I look at end effectors, so the stuff that like picks up stuff, it seems to me that the most interesting investments in end effectors are in pack houses. Why? Because you get used to picking up stuff. And I think that those things then become really interesting to start to incorporate years from now in conjunction with something like a future acres, because you now have a more efficient thing. We know exactly where things are moving, when, how much, and we can actually start to potentially be doing cold storage packing in fields. And that enables that farmer to then get a lot more margin and potentially brand their own product. So that's how I'm thinking about it. I like that example of how the system might change. We've thought about as well, like how even pack houses might change because if you've got more knowledge of what's going to be harvested when, because there are more machines collecting more data in the field, then do you need less storage infrastructure because you can have a more real-time system and that you're kind of using out waste in the supply chain? There's kind of other potential changes that might end up happening to the whole system. 
what's also really interesting is how this varies so much by crop and by geography too, right? Like in, in a lot of crops, there's a kind of a version of packing in field that then gets unpacked and quality controlled in pack houses. And there's just so many weird little inefficiencies that it's hard to even think about innovating for these weird niches. Yeah. The more you get into it, the more confusing it gets. Well, it's something that I want to talk about, like why bringing robotics and autonomy to farms is hard. So maybe you can talk a little bit about the technical challenges and then the business challenges, one of which I think is what you're saying. Like these markets can be niche depending on how specific you go to like solving a real pain point, but maybe start with some of the technical challenges. The technical ones like robotics companies require hardware, ag is seasonal, you could get a bunch of expensive engineers to build an expensive robot. Maybe it's the cheapest robot you can build, but it's probably kind of expensive. And then you get that in the field for that. Hopefully, hopefully you get it in the field for that very limited window of time. You have to test it. And then when inevitably it kind of sucks and you have to go back and fix it, which is fine, but you end up needing to fix it in the off season. So let's just say summer, winter, you test it in the summer, you have this very expensive staff who probably can fix it in a two or three month period of time, really, but who is now, you've got this very expensive headcount burden that you have to pay. So your burn rate is crazy and you don't really get feedback on the stuff you're building quickly. So that's tough to invest in. The other element though, I think is specialty crops, which I mean, agriculture generally is very fragmented, specialty crops even more so. Like I can tell you why it makes sense for two different blueberry fields in the same county, one to be organic, one not to be organic based on the swampiness of one level of the field, right? And there's these nuances that most startups that I see say, we are addressing the specialty crop market. I'm like, definitely not. (laughs) You're definitely not going to be able to effectively address the entire market. And you're probably not even going to be able to effectively address like large, medium, small within a crop. So I think even if you look at like strawberries and apples, where there's been a lot of investment and we have some companies that are harvesting, maybe not quite at the rate that we need in peak, but like it's getting closer to reality. But even so, those only really work on in like very specific, extremely large farm contexts. And specialty crop actually has a lot of medium-sized farms that are profitable, which is different from row crops. So understanding that matters. And then there's also the different form factors of the actual produce, like picking a strawberry is different than picking an apple, not to our hands, but to a robot hand, let alone how the field is laid out and the size requirements and there's a bunch of stuff. And that varies even within crops, right? Because we haven't even talked about the genetic side of things where ideally, actually, and there have been interesting examples of this where like you are pairing genetic development with mechanization, but like you also have to pair that with the market side of things. It's a very complicated equation to get right. Which is where my head goes with how farms might change is you could imagine, and we heard about this on the podcast years ago, like farmers planting different varieties that are more suited to having machines in the fields, like that are shorter, that are spaced out differently, that have different timelines, but starting to all the way upstream into genetics of new varieties change how the farm is actually laid out, spacing of irrigation systems, et cetera. You could imagine lots of changes that that don't exist today. How 
are you thinking about the challenge of having like really high tech stuff in the field that farmers may or may not have the skills or ability or interest to to test to service? How do you tackle that iterative development problem, but also the actual service problem once these things go to market? I'm avoiding that. I don't want the super high tech stuff because I'm thinking about the mechanics that I've employed and I'm yeah, he's not going to know what to do with that. And like service is inherently very expensive and I'm pretty skeptical of the RAS model for the most part. There are certain situations where it can work when you've got a consolidated enough customer base of geography. Tell me what the RAS model is and why you don't believe in it. Okay. Robotics as a service. So robotics as a service is trying to turn robots into software and saying, you're not going to buy robots outright. You're going to pay a subscription fee. And we are going to come with our robots and get the stuff done that you're paying for. And it varies. The thing that's interesting too about RAS is it is open to some interpretation. I find in agriculture, especially just to parallel it to something that exists and works in agriculture, which is agricultural services companies, but those things exist like spraying companies. So I think I generally think RAS is tough for startups because not only do you have all the problems that we already talked about of trying to build a robotic company for ag, but now you're also trying to be a service provider and you get the classic venture capital thing of like, how will that scale? Because you need people to do it. And that is a legitimate thing. And farms are really geographically dispersed and farmers need to get service. And the minute you don't give it to them, they're not buying from you again. Although that's not always true because sometimes you just have to get what you get depending on your geography, but California farmers probably are going to be more discriminating. So what model do you think does work then if you're for the farmer, the humans on the farm and the company building the autonomy, what model do you see makes more sense? I think that the service company model actually makes more sense, but that doesn't make more sense for venture capital. And so this is where there's a real challenge here, right? Where Okay. Capital wants these companies to shoot for the moon only. And so that's where you have to say, okay, yeah, if we can get to the point where we can mechanically harvest this autonomously and just send this fleet of robots, then yeah, this is amazing. But I feel concerned based on what I'm seeing that the amount of capital required to get those companies to that state, and also just like technically where we are right now, I think that there's going to be too long of a time for some of these early movers. But the capital is too high relative to the exit value of these companies that we, that we are likely to see. Because like exits are coming through mergers and acquisitions. And generally speaking, like the biggest ag robotics exit so far has been through 5 million. And that was an anomaly, I think we could argue. So I think it makes sense to be approaching this as, okay, we're not going to have huge exit valuations on some of these companies. But I have customers demanding things right now. They sell themselves some of these products. And so maybe you can make a company that, I don't know, makes money and is profitable. And I think you can totally do that. And I think there will be roll-ups in the future in this space. I don't exactly know what it looks like, but I think if we actually want to solve problems for farmers and for farm workers, then I think the service model will be much more effective and quickly enabling us to do that. We've seen, to your point about the Blue River exit and Bear Flag, the equipment manufacturers and OEMs are playing a bit more in this space. What's your view of what they're interested in or are they resistant to autonomy? How are you seeing the existing equipment landscape change and adapt? They're acquiring for the same reasons that they're acquiring other things. So either it's for customers, land and expand. It's either for some part of the tech stack that they think they can integrate across their portfolio 
Yeah, I mean, it, I don't think that equipment manufacturers, OEMs are any different than any of the other big companies making acquisitions. One group though, that I wanna flag that I think is really interesting, both as a customer group, as an investor group, and maybe in the future as an acquisition group in some capacity, I think we will increasingly see farmland investment firms invest in particular in automation it, and labor solutions is a better way I prefer to frame it. Because again, like this is a bunch of finance people looking at the balance sheet and saying, oh my God, we spent how much on hand weaning crews this year? So I think there's a group of investors that are different than venture capital investors that want different kinds of returns because they actually just want to solve their problem so they can continue to have profitable farming businesses. And I think that they have a role to play and I don't know exactly what it is in the future, but stay Mm -hmm. tuned. Do you have any stories of autonomy going wrong? Field trials and demos are always a huge nightmare to figure out. And like you're inevitably the part that you need breaks the week before the trial. And then that part is actually not really replaceable because it turns out that wheelchair motors are hard to get, right? Like it's basically supply chain nightmares is like the bigger issue. One thing that I think is going to be a really interesting thing in this space that I truthfully don't really know how it will end up is like the insurance side of this. But basically like I don't invest in really big things or I have not yet invested in really big things that have caused really big nightmarish scenarios that could happen, but that's higher risk. And so like the insurance side of autonomy and robotics is really interesting and really underserved to my knowledge. So that's a thing I'm looking at a little bit right now. The whole system that will need to evolve around autonomy. Like we talk about this with whether it's mobile technology or once we had cars, like the whole, that the initial technology changed the whole system around that entrance of the technology. And I think the same will be true of autonomy. The farm will change, the insurance will change. We talk a little bit about environmental benefits that once we have autonomy, say for weed management, can you move fully off of chemistry and move to more biology or mechanical approaches? So lots of changes for what autonomy will cause the system to do that it doesn't do today. Maybe on that environmental side, can you talk a little bit about how you see environmental sustainability, resilience benefits with more autonomy? This could go two ways. So you can have more autonomy that is really trying to get full autonomy. We are going to plant, we are going to harvest, we're a big machine. And this is the system we use. These are the genetics we use. This is how our fields look. And on some level, could you eliminate chemical usage maybe in that system? Could you eliminate pesticide for weeding usage in that system? Yeah, maybe, probably. But that doesn't mean you can eliminate fungicides and that doesn't mean you can eliminate other pesticides. It doesn't mean you can eliminate fertilizer. It's like the opposite of eliminating fertilizer because you end up with even more kind of extractive monoculture system. So certainly autonomy can take us that way. That's why I like collaborative autonomy, where we say, okay, let's make robots make people more productive. And in that situation, still, the weeding thing is like, obviously, one of the interesting opportunities right now. Can it enable you to do more organic production? Yes. When we talk about crop waste, right now, a lot of crops are left in the field straight up because it doesn't make economic sense to pick them relative to the price you can get for them. If you can lower that price then cool, you can pick them and we can sell them and we can eat them and we can have cheaper fresh produce. That's assuming a perfect supply chain, which is oversimplifying things. But to me, the biggest thing though is the land use change kind of factor. Can it be easier 
to experiment with what you're doing with your land so that we can accelerate changes. Because probably most of the things we think right now are the best thing to be doing are just like what when we thought the other things that we were doing were the best things to be doing. And so they're not. But getting into more of an attitude of experimentation and like more rapid iteration of what we're doing on farmland is really important. The final bit that I think is really interesting in the context of more the MRB side of environmental stuff is for years and years in agriculture, the pitch has been, hey, will you pay for the sensor set of things so that we can capture your data in your fields? And we're pretty sure we're going to be able to do something useful with it. And now with next generation equipment, we're saying, look, here's this thing that actually saves you money on labor input costs. Oh, by the way, it's capturing some interesting information. And now we can tell you your yield on a per row basis in specialty crops, which you never could do. You can't do that right now. And so, yeah, you start to be able to make smarter management decisions. So all the precision ag stuff of sustainability is relevant, I think. I found Connie's perspective and especially her focus on what she calls collaborative robotics, particularly refreshing in the context of agricultural autonomy that has been pretty focused on building machines that replace humans entirely. I really like her focus on the different business models, not just technologies that will be successful in ag autonomy. But we also wanted to bring in a voice that is focused on the technologies of autonomy. And that brings us back to Ray Russell, who we met at the top of the show. Ray started out working on non-herbicide weeding, specifically autonomous equipment that could detect and kill weeds with microwaves. Since then, Ray has been focusing on autonomous equipment for the strawberry sector. He reports making good progress, including with a recent successful pilot in California. Yet, he says, he definitely doesn't know the answers yet, but is starting to feel like he knows the right questions to be asking. Our producer, Caleb Connor, sat down with Ray for a chat about this work. Here's Ray. When we were in Brisbane, we were working in Broadacre, and I had one of those eureka moments standing out on an 80,000 acre field one night thinking, I can't build enough robots to service an 80,000 acre field, especially when the dollar value for the big five crops, you know, like corn, wheat, soybeans, sorghum, you just can't make that cost benefit work yet because the autonomy for those sort of large tractors is just so expensive. And mm-hmm. all you're replacing is one guy driving this monster machine. So all you're really saving is like $15 an hour, right? But we started doing some research and we started touring around California. And I started seeing these horticulture farms where the dollar value per acre is just insane, like blueberries, mm-hmm. raspberries, just quadruple 10 times what the value of the crop on a broad acre farm. And then there's 30 people out in the field picking these crops. This is where we need to start. We don't need autonomous tractors. What we need are robotic hands to do this pruning, manipulation, spraying, weeding, cutting, you name it, right? It takes hands. But before you can do that, you got to get the perception part of it down. And I tell everybody, you can't cut it, weed it, prune it, harvest it until you can see it. So what we've been working on the last six years is we've been working on a vision system paired to a robotic arm. You know, we can find it and then we can do something with it. And it really has my attention these days. So I tell everybody, if you're looking to get into this game, you're looking for high fidelity camera systems, illumination systems. We've come up with a strobe lighting system so that you can illuminate the scene and get good imaging from your cameras. And then that's half or three quarters of the battle. Robotic arm has a chance of finding it. But sharp shadows, working in the mornings where you got really long shadows across the ground, working in the evenings, long shadows across the ground, those kind of issues, working through those and trying to get a consistent scene for the cameras to look at has been a big part of what we've been working on. What does the business model look like that 
once you get through the technical challenges. So that's where I think the service model, you can't pretend like you're going to suddenly build 10,000 robotic arms for picking strawberries and sending them out there. You can imagine the service requirement that's going to be to put that many things out into a field. You just don't have an engineering team big enough to be able to do that. But if you started out with a service model where you have a small engineering team, you take on one farm the first season, three mm. farms the next season, 10 farms the third season. By the time you get to season 10, you know what all the problems are and you start working through them. But like one of the things, we got so much custom electronics and processing on board, but that's got to be off the shelf computers. So if the computer's out, you just tell the guy, this is the part number, this is where you buy it. And you install it in such a way that he can get it out and replace it, then you got half the battle. But right now there's so much custom stuff, especially in the camera and the illumination stuff. So I think the service model works works better until the point where the farmers start getting comfortable with the technology. They start getting technicians on board rather than mechanics, and then they can start servicing this stuff themselves. But I don't think that time's yet. You think it's, is it like 10 seasons away or five seasons yeah. away? Or? Uh, I think it's not going to start out with the individual farmers. It's going to start out with the big ones like Driscoll's and Taylor, where they have enough revenue and overhead where they can afford to have an R&D team. And they already do have an R&D team, but we're working on stuff that's really cutting edge, especially on the vision side. Machine learning, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother thing, right? Mm. We've just been talking about finding it with the cameras, but... <laughs> The cameras are only sending that information to a computer and the computer's got to decide, okay, is that a raspberry or a bug <laughs> or a piece of dirt or a rock, right? One of the problems with machine learning is that, oh God, it's so labor intensive, right? Imagine capsicum, right? You go out and collect a, a kilometer's worth of capsicum data and you bring that back and you give that to a, we call them labelers. And they run through that video frame by frame. So if you're shooting 16 frames a second, or you shoot a frame every meter, it's thousands and thousands of images. And somebody sits there all day long and they circle capsicums. And then you got to get enough capsicums. So at some point, the computers are fairly confident that I'm pretty sure 80% confidence that is a capsicum, not a half of a squirrel or a rabbit head or something. So making that machine learning go faster. And we've got some ideas on that, but there's already people working on that. There's the low cost solution where you just ship it off to India and 50 cent an hour labor works on those problems. But mm -hmm. what we're finding out is the machine learning is only as good as your labelers. And if the labelers don't have that expert botany background, you just get a bunch of nonsense back. One of the things that we've had success with in just this last two seasons is we were able to convince a couple of the local farmers that are part of this group that we're doing the strawberry work with to use some local college help during the summer to do this labeling. So now you at least got college kids that are working in that field. And then the farms all have botany experts that can transfer their knowledge to these kids to, to make the labeling better. And I can see the last couple of seasons that's actually worked pretty good. And the other thing with the machine learning is, and this gets back to when you turn the systems over, you like to be able to adjust that machine learning as you get more and more used to it. We'll get these requests. Okay, I'm going through the field and I'm looking for green berries. I'm looking for red berries. And I'm looking for, say, this deformed leaf because of this disease. And then suddenly you have a news disease that pops up and you would like to look for that. You got to go back through and label all that data all over again. So those data sets are good for the moment, but as soon as you change them, you go to a different field. If the ground dirt is a slightly different color, if the leaf shape is a slightly different color, if the mm. sunshine is from a different latitude, it's a little different intensity, uh, luminosity, all those have to be taken in. So you really need the data set built for your field. So it almost requires each of the farms to have their own data sets. And that's outside their reach right now. So maybe eventually there's going to be people that come to your farm and do data sets for you. But right now it's kind of part of what we have to do. So these robots, there could be five or six startups 
based on different pieces just in this one robot. Somebody to do the strobe lighting, somebody to do the cameras, somebody to do the machine learning, somebody to do the manipulation. There, Each one of those is a startup in itself. But tell me then, where are they going? Are they going to Adriscoll's into this R&D space for acquisition? Yeah. Or are they going into some larger play into different categories or verticals of agriculture? I've done a lot of work in Central Valley, and most of that work out there is dominated typically by the big growers like Driscoll's and Taylor Farms and things like that. And they've gotten to the point over the last couple of years where they've started their own R&D group, but it seems like those are kind of sputtered out and they're not funding as hard as they were. And I think they're just finding out that it's a really, really niche, especially the, the it, it comes down to the machine learning. You can mm. build the greatest robot in the world the best robotic arm. But if you can't find that damn capsicum in the field, it's worthless. So few colleges teaching machine learning, it's learned like after the fact. So there just isn't enough of us with that kind of experience. So probably what's going to happen is the colleges are probably going to start offering degrees in it, or at least courses in it. So the kids you get in at least have a head start on what they need to know. But right now I see for, especially for the manipulation stuff, not not like plowing or cutting or baling hay or anything like that. Going through a field and saying, we are looking for this specific ripeness of capsicum because right now it's pulling $30 a bushel on the market. And like Kmart only wants apples that are 20 centimeters in diameter and Walmart only wants them 17 inches in, or centimeters in diameter, right? You've got all these little niche things that machine learning can find. It's just not gross harvesting all the apples and turning them into applesauce. And it's the table stuff, right? It's the table grapes, the stuff that ends up on your table that needs that selective harvesting. Machine learning is the key to that. And is there a pathway for that? You mentioned before how you started in the Broadacre or there was a view at Broadacre and then it went more into specialty crops and horticulture. Is there the application of this kind of innovation and development into broadacre and into kind of larger markets as well? Or do you think it's going to stay very specifically in this space? So for broadacre, I think as soon as the cost of, a, of automating a tractor or buying an automated tractor crosses under the labor cost of having a guy sitting in that seat, then you'll start seeing automation in broadacre. Those tractors are $250,000 and you come and tell a guy, okay, we're going to replace this thing that you got sitting here, this asset, and we're going to replace it with this robot. And all it's going to save you is $15 an hour because instead of having a guy driving, the robot's going to drive it. The only thing you might gain, you can drive at night, you know, you could run 24-7. So there's some asset saving there. Now, you'll hear this model where there'll be like a centralized location in a nice air-conditioned room that's maybe controlling five or six tractors, right? Once they get started on an 80,000-acre farm, I've, the farmer told me this one time, he said, what's your big concern is? And I said, we're concerned about robots getting loose. And he just stood around and he said, there isn't anything to hit in 10 kilometers in any direction. But what are you guys worried about? Because the farmers want this stuff in their field. And we're yeah. always like, oh, robots... Mostly what they do is run off into the woods and catch on fire. But if yeah. you got a robot, it's only going five miles an hour and it's at an 80,000 acre farm. Yeah. You got lots of time. If there's an issue, you got lots of time to do something about it. As soon as we walk off the field, that robot is done. If there's even a single blip. And it's a little bit like what happened in the truck industry where like my dad was a truck driver for 50 years, drove this old 1960 Mac. It, there was no air codes or electronic gremlins, but now, oh my God. You turn the key on these trucks and these dashes light up and they're running through scripts, they're running through diagnostic codes and stuff like that. And if there's a single problem, everybody's just standing around looking at each other. But now mm. they got these big machines, they roll over, they plug them in, and it at least gives you a clue of what's going on. Other than the tractors, there's nothing like that on the farms. So the guys are just, if a red light goes out, they don't know what to do. They don't know mm. what box do I open and where do I look if there's power on something. So 
trying to figure out how we're going to jump that hurdle. We've got some ideas. I think probably the most important part of it is that I think trying to offer a product is a sure way to die because it just isn't mature enough yet to put in the fields for the farmers to support it. First of all, they tend to be very self-reliant, so they don't like to call for help. They want a manual and I want to know how to fix it. And this stuff just doesn't work well in manuals. So I think a support kind of sector works better than a product sector in the sense that you're going to, you're going to provide a service, but you can maintain it and learn as you're going so that you got the tech guys on, you got boots on the ground to support that service in the field until the point it gets mature enough that it can be a product. I think what Ray has elevated here, especially around first the need for autonomous solutions to solve costly problems and probably ones in specialty crops first, and secondly, the need for effective service are really key. And they dovetail nicely with many of the conclusions that Connie has drawn. I wanted to bring in one last voice, Kevin Andrews, Strategic Marketing Manager for Autonomy at Trimble. We spoke with him and his colleague about how Trimble, as an established organization in the ag equipment space, is thinking about the future of autonomy, especially when it comes to, say, acquiring the kinds of companies and technologies that Ray is working on or that Connie is investing in. Here's Kevin. Every day there's a new startup that has found a way to harvest this or navigate that. And that's great for Trimble because these are future partners. They're either future members of our ecosystem that we can bring to market or we can help bring to market, or they're customers of our fundamental technologies like, like positioning. We're very much encouraging of that market. Some of them are going to be technology partners because they found a new algorithm or they found a new method. Some of them are going to be startup OEMs that will find their niche. And so these are very much customers that, that could be interesting uh, to Trimble down the road. But obviously, you know, who's making the headlines? You've got the big guys like John Deere and CNH that are, they're investing heavily as well. And they're big enough that maybe they can do it themselves. So that's a hypothesis that I think we're going to see play out in the next couple of years is can they really do it themselves? Trimble's position is that autonomy is big. Autonomy is hard. You need partners. And we are hopefully a big piece of the puzzle, but we're just one piece of the puzzle. We want to be a partner. And we know there's a lot of other partners that are going to want to join as well. And we welcome the competition. We want people to be wildly successful. But I think our worst case scenario is somebody comes in and overpromises and fails visibly, horribly. And this would could potentially sour the market to autonomy. And that's what we don't want. Don't take safety seriously. If everybody doesn't take safety seriously, then that could sour the market for autonomy going forward. And that's the last thing we want is a significant delay in the adoption because people don't trust it. There's so much to unpack across these conversations about why autonomy is so hard, how it's working today, and where we're likely to see it go in the future. But a few key insights jumped out at me. First, I think the question of labor costs that both Connie and Ray spoke to is critical. There's been a ton of energy and excitement pointed at autonomy in broadacre crops, from driverless tractors to the idea of applying crop protection with autonomous swarms of drones. But farmers as customers are value-driven, and no matter how cool the tech, if it takes a $500,000 machine or many $10,000 machines to just replace one or two workers, it's a pretty tough ROI. To us, the real potential for autonomy in broadacre has to have a lot of other value adds beyond reducing the need for labor. That's not to say that those other value adds don't exist. We didn't talk about any in this episode, but they are definitely emerging. Second, part of the problem with making investments in ag autonomy is how specialized and difficult to use and manage autonomous technology can be. I appreciated Ray's insights about how much manual work can be involved in visualizing fields, which might make autonomy too costly, even in high revenue specialty crop sectors, at least for a while. 
And an alternative to this costly effort is the idea that Connie calls collaborative robotics, the idea of allowing human workers to focus on the most difficult jobs for computers, like identifying a fruit and picking it gently, and then using autonomy to do the parts where humans have no particular advantage, like carrying full buckets to the collection point. This kind of tech might not be as sexy as a whole strawberry field managed by only robots, but it certainly seems more viable in the short term and allows for labor reductions even if it doesn't replace human workers altogether. Where Connie, Ray, and Kevin's comments come together in my mind is around the question, what parts of ag autonomy are a right fit for venture capital? As our first two guests pointed out, though there are certainly addressable markets for specialty implements in some of the world's most valuable crops, many of these markets are simply not that large. Tied in with Kevin's thoughts around the sheer difficulty of working on autonomous solutions and how necessary it will likely be for the biggest players to integrate outside tech into their offerings going forward, these conversations offer compelling evidence in our minds that the biggest opportunities in ag autonomy will lie not in replacing current equipment with autonomous equipment, but in the new practices and farming systems that autonomy can unlock. So that's it for another episode of Ag Tech So What? Thanks to our guests, Connie Bowen, Ray Russell, and Kevin Andrews. A special thanks to our producer, Caleb Connor, for helping bring us Ray's story. And thanks to Trimble Ag for partnering with us to bring you this episode, the final one in the series. And of course, thank you for listening. For more information on any of the resources mentioned in this podcast, visit our website, tenacious.ventures. I'm Sarah Nolette. Catch you next time.